Hi, everyone, and welcome to the episode 22 of the Tech Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is The Humble Academic Superhero, an interview with Dr. Thomas Mather, Professor of Entomology and Director of the University of Rhode Island Tick Encounter Resource Center. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. Dr. Thomas Mather is a professor of entomology at the University of Rhode Island. He began to study medical entomology under the watchful eye of his mentor, Professor Paul Katz at the University of Delaware, and then went on to study vector diseases while earning his PhD at the University of Wisconsin. Then in 1983, he accepted a position at the Harvard School of Public Health to study ticks and Lyme disease. In 1992, he left the Harvard School of Public Health to accept a position at the University of Rhode Island. There, he became the national leader in the study of ticks and Lyme disease. He is the founder and director of the University of Rhode Island's Tick Encounter Resource Center, which has received local, national, and international recognition for programs that include the Tick Smart and Tick Spotter programs. His research and scholarly record is diverse and vast, co-authoring over 125 scholarly papers that have been cited thousands of times. In this first of a three-part interview with Tick Bootcamp, you will learn how this humble and brilliant scholar was at the center of developing many of the research and tick control tools that are in common use today, including tick tubes. Welcome, Dr. Thomas Mather. I'd like to share with our listeners a little, little bit about who Thomas Mather is before he goes into the phone booth and puts on his Superman or Tick Man uniform. <laughs> well, yeah. So I, I grew up in southern New Jersey in probably the mo most rural county. And I think that what that did for me was it gave me just a love of nature. Um, however, there were bits of nature that I was always a bit scared of, and that included, included bugs. So to find myself sort of in the bug world at the extent that I'm in it now um, still sort of surprises me um, because I was always scared of bugs. Um, I loved turtles. And so I was uh, actually, I don't want to take up too much time, but the reason I ended up at my college, Muhlenberg College, I mean, who would have ever necessarily heard of that? Um, except for there was a turtle that was rare. It was on the endangered species list, list, but it actually was fairly common in the area where I lived. And I, as a 12-year-old, gave five of them to the Philadelphia Zoo because they wanted them. <laughs> Who knew? Um, and so later, I'm sure I'm the only person that Muhlenberg College ever accepted that told them the story when they asked, how, how did you hear of Muhlenberg College? And I told them my turtle story. And they were like, well, we've heard a lot of stories, but we never heard that one before. So That's a really cool story. I, I actually heard of Muhlenberg. My uh, younger sister went to Albright College. So we were familiar with some of the really good, small Lutheran schools in, in the state of Pennsylvania. What did you study as an undergraduate at Muhlenberg? Most of the students there in the sciences, I actually went there as a history major and converted into science after I had a great um, professor who just got me kind of sold on science. And um, yeah, so I followed sort of an ecology track. Um, at the time, most of the students in biology and natural sciences were wanted to become a doctor. And I didn't really want to do that, but I was pretty interested in sort of nature and ecology and um, followed that track and then went from there to the University of Delaware um, in the entomology program. Um, I 
like to think now, you know, I went, tried to get into the biology department and was unable to um, get in. But my father was a professor at the University of Delaware. And he said, well, I, I've been on a committee with these folks down in entomology. Why don't you go check that out? And later, um, as my career developed, he would always say to me, you know, Tom, that was the best decision we ever made. <laughs> um, yeah, and then I went from there to University of Wisconsin and was working in a lab um, focused on a mosquito-borne disease. Um, I, I would say the pivot really for me, though, was I had a, an outstanding professor at the University of Delaware, Paul Katz. He was the medical entomologist, and he was just he – sh- he just – opened up a whole new world for me was, uh, you know, the fact that people don't want to get sick. They may hate bugs, but they dislike ones that make them sick even more. And um, there was a, a real opportunity to do something about that to help help people not be, become sick. And so that's, I, I just found that fascinating, you know. Most of the students there, they were studying bugs at eight plants, agricultural pests and everything. I was interested in studying something that uniquely fed on blood. (laughs) And um, that seemed like there was going to be an opportunity, not just, you know, to, to help people not get sick, but in the fact that these bugs don't survive if they don't find if they don't steal blood and there's a very unique relationship between their the host and the bug at that point and so that that i think is where i really jumped off and started to have an appreciation for blood sucking um bugs and at, in wisconsin though i was studying mosquitoes and a virus called the cross virus that um they transmitted and when i finished there, I had three opportunities. Um, One, I could have gone to Notre Dame and done a postdoc doing the same kind of stuff I was doing with the same kind of mosquito. They were like competing labs, and so they were happy to have me come there because I would already have been trained. I was offered the job of um, mosquito coordinator for the state of Mississippi, and all I could picture was it being very hot in the summer with lots of things biting me. And the third position was at the Harvard School of Public Health. I was offered a position as a postdoc to study this new, this newfangled thing that they were calling Lyme disease. In 1983, it was all kind of new, um, and um, it seemed like a great opportunity. My family had a home on uh, Cape Cod, and could go back to the east, and that seemed like a something. I didn't know much about ticks at the time, but um, it seemed like an opportunity. So that's that's where I went. What type of work did you do when you were working at the um, public health school at Harvard? Well, at that point, pretty much everything that needed to be known, for the most part, was open open season. So we looked at what people knew about other bugs and figuring out their life histories and their vector relationships and realized that, you know, none of this was really known for the, for whatever was transmitting this recently recognized bacteria called Borrelia burgdorferi that was um, 
causing people to get Lyme disease. Where did it come from? Where did it live? How did it do what it does in nature? You know, all of those were like unanswered questions that was just like, okay, well, all you have to do is roll up your sleeves and start. So um, we started focusing in the way I like to think about things. I sort of started doing little experiments, um, both in the laboratory, because I didn't get there until sort of winter time, and trying to figure out, well, how long does it take those ticks to feed? And what do they do after they feed? And, you know, and just starting to get my head into the game of it. And it turned out that a lot of those early observations really kind of focused in on the white-footed mouse as a principal reservoir. Didn't know that at the time. No one knew that. Now it seems like, oh, yeah, this is what everybody reads. But in 1983 and four, we didn't know that. And it was at that point that we started saying, you know, I started thinking to myself, and I conjured up this thought from what Paul Katz's medical entomology class had shown me. So that back in 1955, a guy named Leo Cartman had um, put DDT powder in little PVC tubes with bait so that rodents would run through them and treat themselves to kill the fleas that would cause plague. And that seemed like, oh, that sounds pretty interesting. And I didn't give it any other thought really after the exam in, you know, 1981 or two, whenever I took that class. And then um, we started to think about this in terms of these ticks that carry Lyme disease, they're picking the germ up from white-footed mice. And at some point, they're focused on the mice. They're in order to suck that blood so that they survive and they incidentally pick up a germ at the same time, but they're targeted on an animal. Later, they get spread all over the woods, but at one point in their life cycle, they're all in one place and we know where that place is. Well, we don't exactly know, but the mice know where they are. And so I came up with this idea of of targeting, targeting them. And so that became something known as uh, Daminix tick tubes, um, ultimately. So we were able to think about, all right, let's give the mice something that will kill the ticks wherever they are. We don't know where the mice are, but we know that at some point in the life cycle, the ticks that are becoming infected are focused on um, those mice. And so that was really one of the first um, major contributions that I feel like I made sort of focused on the whole concept of targeted strategies for um, reducing infected ticks. Dr. Matthew, we did a lot of research on you, and I did not know that you were the mastermind behind tick tubes, which we studied a lot here at Tick Bootcamp. So that's just another thing that we love you for. So thank you. Well, it's, a, it's, a, it's, an, it's an interesting story if I can digress just a second. Please. So at the time, I, I wanted to see if... The, I wanted to count the ticks that were coming from the mice. And so I thought I'd make little mouse houses. And so I invested heavily in PVC um, tees, you know, like a tee so I could unscrew the bottom and take it off and dump the ticks out that would fall off of the mice. And I, put, I made a little tunnel on one of the 
parts of the tea so that the mice would have a nice little tunnel to go into. And I made all of these mouse houses, you know, probably 300 of them and um, put them all out in the woods. And it took me about two days to realize that those mice, um, when they got into my little houses, were treating them a little like Steve and Tyler and the boys would treat a hotel room after a gig. Um, they trashed the place. I had a bit of bit of cotton in there. They stole the bed. They loaded. They carried their acorns inside because, of course, it was safe. They couldn't ch- chomp and make as much noise as they wanted because they were protected from predators inside those little houses. And so it was just a, a mess when I would open it up. There would just be all chewed acorns and no and no cotton. And then the little light bulb went off in my head. It's like, well, I just wanted them to take the cotton anyway. So I had all of these tubes that were the tunnels. I'd cut them in half. And that was the very first tick tubes, um, sort of the leftover of my failed experiment of a mouse house. That's a really cool story. Thank you for sharing that with us. So Dr. Mother, can you, can you uh, just walk back to your time at Harvard, and can you share with us if there were any other discoveries that you made there that have become part <laughs> of the, uh, I guess, tick lore at this point after the Daminex tick tubes? Yeah, so the very first thing, <clears throat> I, I always love this story and I tell my students that, and it, to this day it plays out in, in the whole thing. <clears throat> So before I went to Harvard, I had one opportunity to go with a guy, a fellow student who had just gotten a job in Wisconsin as the somebody that's supposed to be trying to study these ticks that caused Lyme disease in Wisconsin. He said to me one day, hey, do you want I have to go to Fort McCoy, which is on the western side of the state. And they told me I could probably collect black-legged ticks there. And I said, sure, I'll go with you. And he had a, you know, a fancy, you know, not fancy, it was a broom handle with a corduroy cloth on it, um, tick drag. But I was a poor graduate student. I had no fancy tick drag. All I had, you know, was a pair of corduroy pants and I tied a rope on the belt loops. And so we drove two and a half or three hours to get to Fort McCoy and, you know, in the middle of... Um, army games going overhead helicopters and shooting and everything we were in the woods you know people popping up all the time collecting ticks you know what the heck are these guys doing but I was finding I don't know I probably that day collected three or four hundred nymphal stage black-legged ticks my friend got about 12 and so I was like well I don't know what was going on there. And so when I got to Harvard, the lab meetings, it was winter. And so the lab meetings, they were all, the other people that were working there, they were like, well, if we could only collect the nymphs that were host seeking, we'd be able to determine the infection rate because all we can do now is trap mice and take the ticks off of the mice because that's where the ticks are. But then they might have become infected already by feeding on the mice. And I said, well, I don't understand why you're having trouble collecting these ticks because in Wisconsin, I collected 300 in like one afternoon. And they said, oh, those couldn't have been black-legged ticks because, you know, all the smart minds there at Harvard, they would have figured that out already. And so, you know, they talked about it and teased me and whatever for a few months until summer came. 
And then we all went tick collecting. At the time, now I had advanced, I was fancy Harvard, I should have an old, a tick drag, but they were all using their tick drags. I still decided to use my corduroy pants. And we went to a place and, you know, I got, I don't know, around 400 or so ticks. And, you know, the majority of the rest of them got two or three or five or something like that in a few hours. And it that, you know, isn't enough to really get a substantial enough sample to to test for infection. And then they looked at mine. They said, well, how did you get all of those ticks? And I said, I don't know. I was just dragging my corduroy pants through the woods. And the lesson that we learned from that was, was, so soon after, everybody started dragging corduroy pants, and we finally it dawned on us what was happening. So as you take your big one square meter drag across the vegetation, it stays on the top of the vegetation. But that's not where the nymphs are. <laughs> the nymphs are down on the ground. And if your sampling method doesn't get down on the ground, you're never going to collect a single tick. But the legs of my pants were falling through the vegetation to the ground. And so that became very clear that if you want to collect something, you have to know where it is and you have to design your tool to get there. And um, so I teach that in my class to my students now, whenever you're trying to decide whatever you're going to sample, you need to kind of understand like where, where it's hanging out. Um, and so that's my magic pants story, but it was, uh, <laughs> it kind of revolutionized the whole concept of, you know, tick flagging for a different kind of tick. You know, normally they had developed these one square meter pull drags for sampling like American dog ticks, you know, 70, 80 years ago. And because they're out in the open. And you can do that out in the open, but you try and pull that through the the briars and the blueberry bushes, you know, where black-legged ticks occur, and you know it's never gonna that flag is never gonna see the see the ground where the ticks are. That's really cool, Dr. Mabel. So you you're the tick tube guy, and now the nymph <laughs> guy. Uh, so. <laughs> Well, it all seems, you know, it, it's like now it seems, oh, yeah, like everybody knows, but they have to remember. And we teach our students every time we start new students uh, in the field, you got to make sure your flag hits the ground if you want to get black-legged ticks. Or just make sure you, you get some of Mather's corduroy pants and uh, you'll be good. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that, that, that's, a, that's a, another really cool story. A anything else while you were at Harvard that you discovered? Well, we focused a lot of my work then focused on, you know, looking at the the different hosts that might serve as reservoirs for the Lyme disease germ. And so I did sort of a lot of comparative studies by catching animals in nature that would have been naturally infected and then putting unfed larval ticks on them that were reared in the laboratory so they would have been pathogen free. And then ask the simple question, well, how many of those ticks, what proportion of them become infected after they feed on those animals? And so I did pretty much every possible animal that these ticks might feed on and found that some animals, for instance, white-tailed deer don't infect ticks, but animals like white-footed mice infect ticks very efficiently and things like squirrels are much less likely to infect 
ticks with Lyme disease germs. Certain birds didn't seem to do it at all, although now we know that some birds can serve as reservoirs. One time we were doing a dog vaccine study, and I asked the sponsor if I could put pathogen-free larval ticks on the dogs after we had infected them. And it turned out that was a study that we showed that dogs can even serve as reservoirs for the, for the Lyme disease germ, that they not only become infected, but they can also become infective to ticks feeding on them. And so that, that was probably the study that I was most proud of, actually, from my time at Harvard. Can humans give ticks Lyme disease? Well, so there has been a study done now where they were trying to do the same, we call it xenodiagnosis, where ticks try and fish the germ out of people. And it's been shown that in very rare occasions, there's enough of a dose that can be acquired, but not very efficiently at all. So I would say people are not good reservoirs for the Lyme disease germ, at least in the concept of a reservoir being infected and infected. Humans are pretty much dead-end hosts for the Lyme disease germ. Folks, this is where we're going to end the first of our three episodes of our Tick Bootcamp podcast interview with Dr. Thomas Mather. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you would like to learn more about Dr. Mather and the University of Rhode Island's Tick Encounter Resource Center, please visit their website at tickencounter.org. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast interview with Dr. Mather, please share it with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of the post. Third, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music, or Spotify to get the automatic episode updates for our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, please take a minute to leave us an honest review and rating on iTunes. This is a new effort, and you can really help us when it comes to creating a podcast that you would like to listen to. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews we get. Thank you for listening.